You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. We are privileged today to sit down with Dr. Danny Aiken. He is the president of Southeastern Seminary, but probably more significantly for this conversation is someone who is very much engaged in the conversation and expository preaching. So, Dr. Aiken, thrilled to have you here today. Well, Stephen, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I got to hear you an hour and a half ago here at our chapel on Southwestern's campus preach my favorite sermon of yours, Revelation 5. Uh, first time I heard that was on a CD from Southern's Chapel. Was that the first time you had preached it there? There it was. Actually, it's a text I fell in love with years ago as a result of uh, Dr. Patterson and Dr. Criswell's love for the book of Revelation. And so I've actually taught through the book several times and preached through it right at 35, 37 messages when I was at Highview Baptist Church yeah. in Louisville as a teaching pastor. And I will confess of all the text in Revelation, uh, the fifth chapter is my favorite. I just think it's just so incredibly awesome. So thank you. I, I love teaching from it. So uh, let me just start there. A text like that captures your heart. We all this experience as preachers. The Word of God is the Word of God, but sometimes a text catches your heart. It resonates with people. They respond differently. And so you find yourself preaching it more. Mm-hmm. Do you sense a message like that for you changes you, and then as a consequence, the message morphs over time, and it is nuanced and tweaked in different ways the more you preach it. I think it's exactly how I would say it, Stephen. Uh, I have preached it a number of times because I'm a, I have an itinerant ministry, and I've even had people sometimes, I heard you preach this text somewhere. We would really like you to preach that text again for us at our church. And I have to say, you know, there's always the risk of it becoming a routine or right. almost where you become numb to it. But I, even this morning, got back up, read through the passage several times, prayed over it. I even read some new books uh, on it, including um, Dr. Patterson's forthcoming commentary, just again to just make sure I was handling the text well. But God really fed my soul through that preparation. And so you said yesterday in our forum, uh, expository preaching is guided by the substance, the structure, and then you added rightly the spirit of a text. And yeah, that text really grabs a hold of my heart, and I hope then that is communicated well to the audience that I'm addressing. Yeah, well, it does. And um, a lot to talk about there because if style, casualness in the pulpit is a value, you can't really push the book of Revelation because it just emotes something so big out of you when you exalt Christ this way, which also uh, I want to talk to you later on about why you gravitate so much to the to the Christological text because those seem to be your sweet spot. They are. In preaching. All right. So grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Is that yes. correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. And attended the Crystal College. Yes. Uh, God called me in the ministry on a mission trip to uh, the Papago Indian Reservation on, in Sales, Arizona. Came back to my home church pastor like most people do. And I said, what do I do? And he said, well, you can go to college and go to seminary. And Stephen, I didn't even know what a seminary was in 1977. He said, oh, there's a Bible college in, in Dallas that's led by a man named Paige Patterson. I didn't know who Dr. Patterson was. I didn't know who Dr. Crystal was, but I trusted the counsel of my uh, my home church pastor. And so he said, if you want to begin right now, that's where I would go. And so I did. Uh, Dr. Patterson was my preaching professor. He preached my ordination, massive impact on me, and certainly instilled in me uh, a great love for faithful expository preaching. Wow. Um, so talk about that influence. How much did Dr. Patterson influence your preaching? Massively. Um, he uh, taught me uh, that 
the text is what drives the message, and apart from the text, we really have no message. Uh, it's the Word of God, and that's what people need to hear is the Word of God. He also taught me, as we said a moment ago, honor not only the substance of the text, but the way the author uh, mm-hmm. of Scripture structured the text as well. But then he also uh, in, emphasized the fact that there's three salient uh, elements to preaching. You've, I'm sure you've heard him share uh, pathos, ethos, logos. Yeah. Logos, of course, is the content of the word. Uh, ethos is the credibility, the integrity of the one delivering the message. But pathos, uh, deliver the word of God with passion, and I recognize passion is expressed in different ways through different people. But I agree with you. Uh, I have no problem, and in fact, appreciate uh, the kind of the casual coffee table conversational method of a number of guys today, especially if they're honoring the text. Right, right. But at the same time, there has to come a point where passion enters in when you are calling people to respond in some way to the Word of God. And I don't know how you can do that dispassionately. I I think that requires your heart and your spirit getting involved in it. And yes, a book like Revelation, Christological texts that exalt the person and work of Christ, they naturally, I think, bring that to the forefront. It's interesting. You and Dr. Patterson sound so much different. Rarely does a mentor enable a mentee, if you will, uh, and yet the mentee be able to distance himself and find his own voice. And so that's a, a wonderful thing. Well, I think one thing is Dr. Patterson told us when, when I first began at Criswell that uh, good preachers listen to great preachers. And he gave us a number of men that he said we ought to listen to. And he said, now, I'm not telling you to copy me or any one of them. You do have to find your own voice and the the style that is true to who you are. But listen to a lot of different men and ask the question, one, uh, why would I want to come back and listen to them again and again and again? And then secondly, how do they handle the Word of God in such a way that they're true to the text? And these men that he recommended to us were all very different, but they were all faithful exposers of the word. So I guess I've been impacted mostly by him, but I've drawn uh, wisdom and insight from probably at least a dozen other preachers that are all at some point in time and in some way, uh, are, they are a part of me yeah. as a result of listening yeah. to them preach. Yeah. Who are they? Uh, John MacArthur, uh, Chuck Swindoll, mm-hmm. Adrian Rogers, uh, Jerry Vines, Stephen Olford. Now, those are uh, some of them are not now with the Lord yeah. and have, have moved on. In recent years, I've come to appreciate the preaching of Alistair Begg, um, David Platt, yeah. uh, Matt Chandler, John Piper, James Merritt, yeah. uh, dear friend. I uh, love to hear all of them preach. Mark Dever, Andy Davis, Stephen Davey, who's not as well known, but pastors a wonderful church in the uh, Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, when I'm teaching even today, Stephen, through a book of the Bible, uh, I will try to listen to at least five or six exposers. If I if they have spoken or preached on those texts that I'm working through, I will try to listen to them. Uh, to quote Adrian Rogers, uh, I, uh, I churn my own uh, butter. Uh, I draw from a number of people that uh, enter into the equation, but I don't preach their sermons. But I, I'm impacted by their sermons, just in part by the way they handle the text and the spirit. I love what you say. The spirit that they bring to expounding a particular text yeah. makes an impact upon me. Okay. Um, MDiv here, Southwestern, mm-hmm. in Ph.D. in Humanities at University of Texas at Arlington, writing on the soteriology of Bernard of Clairvaux. Yes. That's another interview, but let's, uh, uh, let's move on. Tell us about your first sermon. Wow. My first sermon uh, was preaching at a church in Dallas. 
uh, the pastor was going to be out. I decided I would preach on Acts 8, 26 through 40, fell up in the Ethiopian eunuch. And Dr. Crystal had preached four sermons on that uh, particular passage. I got the four sermons. Uh, I'm only 20 years old now. I didn't even know yeah. what a commentary was. Yeah. And so I got the four sermons. I listened to them over and over and over, and I basically put a sermon together. What's better is my second sermon. I go back to my home church to preach a watch night service, which why people have a service at midnight is beyond You're me. You're saying back. You're at Criswell. I was at Criswell back. and went back home to Atlanta, Georgia, right. to preach at my home church. Dr. Patterson, the first time I ever heard him preach uh, in chapel at Criswell College, preached on the book of Jonah. It was a magnificent sermon over yeah. all four chapters. I literally memorized that sermon. I love it. And went back home and preached it because, again, <laughs> I'd never had a class in preaching. I didn't know what a commentary was, but I knew that what I heard from him that particular day so grabbed my heart. And, again, my, my, my mind is good preaching is the kind of preaching, not that you can hit out of the ballpark once every now and then, but the kind of preaching that you want to go back and listen to week after week after week. And I could hear Dr. Patterson preach uh, every week until yeah. I go to be with the Lord. So I basically copied that message. That is the only time, though, in my entire life that I, in essence, I guess, plagiarized a sermon. Yeah. Later, I had him as my preaching professor and began at that point uh, to churn my, my own butter after mm-hmm. milking a number of cows. <laughs> Um, you mentioned listening to others. Let me just turn our listeners on to a couple of things that have influenced me that you've done okay. over the years. One, I've already mentioned the uh, Christological passages. You do so many of them well, but Isaiah 53 uh, and uh, the one I've just mentioned, Revelation 5, I had a chance to hear both of those live and uh, very, very helpful because one is dealing with an Old Testament prophetic text, another apocalyptic literature, but you honor the structure by getting to the meaning very, very well. Another thing that was helpful to me was, I think in 2008 at Southeastern, you did a series on Titus, mm-hmm. uh, verse by verse, and extremely helpful. So both those are available at DanielAiken.com, I believe. They are. And so I want to turn those guys on to those. So um, take us through your preparation process. And we could. That's where I'd like to spend the bulk of our time. Okay. We You have two uh, sources that you've written and edited, one engaging exposition uh, with uh, Curtis and Bill Curtis and with Stephen Rummage, and then uh, with Ned Matthews and uh, Dr. David Allen, yeah. you did uh, text-driven preaching. So one, a manual, one more of a, a sweeping macro view of what text-driven preaching is. So those are good resources to look to, but take us through your process and maybe some nuances uh, peculiarities, things that would surprise us about your preparation process. Well, I think the thing that would surprise everyone is I write every sermon out uh, longhand. Manuscript. Be- yes, because I can't type. I can I can peck with two fingers, so I write everything out longhand. I wrote my dissertation longhand. So my students today are like, wow, there really is a Neanderthal yeah. among us. <laughs> but what I will do, of course, after I've determined the text, like right now I'm preaching through Mark on Wednesday nights at our church. So I know, for example, that I'm going to preach on uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32, and I'll decide to take it all the way through verse 45, where you have the key verse in Mark. So I will read through the text. Uh, I use the ESV now. I'll read through the, the English text a number of times. Jot down some ideas, maybe begin to discern the, the structure, because I do have a model that I follow. Uh, I, I study the scriptures. I structure the text. 
I gleaned the main idea of the text. And then for me, Stephen, all that then crosses a, if you like, a pyramidic structure. The, the main idea of the text really does determine the main idea of the message. Let me, let me stop you yeah, right there ahead. if you want. You said something interesting in its chronology. I read it, find the structure, then find the main idea. Right. So your implication there is that the structure is the hint of the main idea. Wouldn't it be... Uh, smarter to follow some homiletic texts that say, find the main idea first. Why do you find the structure first? Because I think the structure does indeed lead me to the main idea. And what has happened, and I used to do it the other way. What I discovered was when I then went back to analyze the text in terms of a discourse structure, a lot of times my main idea changed. And so I decided, well, let's, let's go the other way. And, and you know, to be fair, the, the main idea emerges at different right. times and in different ways. Sometimes right. it's right there. It's so self-evident. Right. Other times it comes to me when I'm studying the scriptures. Uh, and as I said, I, I will read it in that English text. But then I believe, and I encourage my students, read every passage in five or six, seven or eight different English translations. Read it if you have the ability in the original text. And from there then, uh, after gleaning um, insights from that reading of just the text... Then you can move to the commentaries. And, and I'll be honest, I use to this day seven to ten commentaries on every message that I preach. I use them from devotional all the way to very critical, homiletical, expositional. And so as I'm doing that, the main idea may emerge. But at the same time as I'm studying the content of Scripture, I'm thinking in terms of the structure. But I eventually am going to structure. In other words, I'm mm-hmm. going to try to figure out where the breaks are. Like you mentioned, the Isaiah passage starts in 52.13, mm-hmm. goes all the way through 53.12. Clearly, it has five uh, discernible strophe or, or movements to it. That, that's a pretty easy one to do. And so the, my message is going to wind up having five movements as well because how I structure the scriptures will determine how I structure the sermon. And I want to have as many points in my sermon, two, three, four, maybe five, uh, as I do in um, what I found in structuring the text itself. So I'll read many Different English translations, making observations all along, read seven to ten commentaries, also read it in the original text, then begin to put that substance and that structure together, draw that main idea, and I'll try to let my main idea, Stephen, if I can, be expressed in my title. So, for example, today I preached on Revelation 5, and my title was, Worthy is the Lamb. Uh, you say, well, that's not very creative. Yes, but it's true to the text. It's accurate. Yes. And yeah. for me, I don't think we have to be sensational. I, I, in fact, again, one of the things I like about the younger generation, they're not really uh, all that turned on to sensationalism, but they are turned on to faithful Bible teaching. Right. So if the text has a very simple title uh, that's true to what that passage is about, then go with that. And so, in a sense, my main points are feeding the title, which is my main idea. Right. If I have sub-points, they're feeding the main points. So there's right. almost, again, a pyramidic structure to the way that I put a message together. Right. So, um, by the way, you mentioned dealing with commentaries. You have a resource on collecting a theological library yeah. that's also available on your website. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, um, again, Dr. Patterson's influence years ago, he used to provide something like that when I was both his student and then later when I worked alongside of him at Criswell College and then later at Southeastern. So when I came back to Southeastern, I thought, you know, this would be a very helpful thing to put together. So I worked with some of my uh, grad students. and We put together the original one, and we revised it every two years. And you're right, Building a Theological Library just revised this year, 2011. Uh, now we're, of course, into 2012. It's available uh, online at DanielLakin.com. About 1,500 books there. 
all fields of theological and ministry study. The commentaries, they'll be anywhere from seven to ten per book, but there's two or three starred in every category so that you could see, well, if I can only buy one, two, or three commentaries, these are the two or three that, a that canon Danny... within a canon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's just a very helpful resource I've found. I like have people all the time that will write me or call me and say, I heard you had it. Could I, could I get a copy? And I, I'm glad to send one. To, it's just a, a gift that we like to give to Excellent. people. Good. So you're, you're not working off a hard drive, right? Everything you've told us is longhand. Yes. You're working off a legal pad, something. I'm trying to visualize what this well, looks actually, like. Well, I, actually, I, I, I like to save trees. And so I take, um, uh, paper that's uh, been copied on one side, and I use the back side. You're not serious. I'm serious at a heart attack. And yeah. so there's a stack of paper at my house. It's about uh, 18 inches high, yeah. and I use it. Just recycle it. I just it. recycle it. And yeah. then uh, what I will do is after I write everything out longhand. Is being would, green a real value for you? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, you know, I just, I, I'm wired weirdly, and I just yeah. thought, well, why would we throw that paper away when we could at least use the second side yeah. for something not real serious? Or, of yeah. course, it is serious, but something you're not yeah. going to mail and put in the mail somewhere. Right. So uh, I'll give it to my secretary. Uh, she'll type it out and give it back to me. I will edit it, uh, maybe even read a couple more commentaries, give it back to her. She'll make those corrections, and then I'll read through it one more time, make final corrections, give it back to her, and then it's in a printed form that I will use in preparation for, for preaching. Okay. So that's where, my system. Where do you prepare your sermons? At home. Okay. Uh, we live in a nice home that has a study, and so I uh, have a office in the back. And again, I'm I'm very uh, old fashioned. I sit at a desk. I have two chairs on each side of me, and I surround my writing station with commentaries, Bible dictionaries, uh, the Greek and Hebrew text. Now, why and the two chairs? There's a place I can to put hold more books in them. I can put books in them because I've got about uh, ten to twelve books scattered around me right. as I'm in the process of putting my uh, message together. So no software, no logos. No I don't use any software at all. Yeah. I should, uh, but I just haven't gotten there. And now that I'm 55, I don't know that I'm going to make that change. Yeah. Well, you got to think about it because you could really become an effective expositor. Well, I might. Yes, software, thank you. So. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. My tongue's in my cheek. You can't really <laughs> see that on the on the audio. Um, okay. We we went through that pretty fast. Let me let me back up and say, is that is that one document, or are you trying to produce an exegetical document that's your notes? That later you're going to morph into a homiletical document, or is this all fluid? It's one. It's it's going from Bible to commentaries to your mind to a sermon. There, it's on the fluid page. in one document. Okay. Yeah, and, and sometimes you know, and there are different theories here. Uh, I was taught again by Dr. Patterson to preach without notes, and there are times when I do preach without notes. There are times when I may preach with just a very skeletal outline. Right. There may be other times when I want to be very precise in what I say, and I may be using some rather extensive quotations to right. fit this particular preaching occasion. So I'll have more of a full manuscript with me when I have things like that that I want to make sure I quote exactly and precisely uh, for the people that are listening. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had the chance to see John MacArthur once and David Jeremiah, famous radio preachers, mm -hmm. preaching live, very much tied to notes, at least when MacArthur was preaching a fresh sermon for his because he left his notes in the pulpit once and I found him, gave him back. But there were 16 pages. Yes. David Jeremiah would would look down constantly. So uh, it would make sense in their context because on radio, not a word wasted. In a Southern Baptist tradition where the pathos and the preaching moment, pastor as evangelist is so important, it would make more sense to go away from notes. Would you... Yes, but I would remind us of this. Dr. Patterson, one of the finest preachers I know, uses no notes. Yeah. Jerry Vines, 
used no note, uses no notes. Adrian Rogers had a full manuscript in front of him, and it didn't seem to inhibit him at all. Of course, he was a uh, a unique individual. Yeah. James Merritt, though, likes to go into the pulpit with a heavy set of notes. Yeah. And so what I tell my students is, look, we're all wired differently. If you uh, don't preach well uh with notes, then don't. If you don't preach well without notes, then use them. Uh, do what is going to help you be effective. But if you do go in with a manuscript, two things. One, make sure you don't read it. Make sure, too, you're not so tied to it that the folks never see your eyes. Yeah. Uh, make sure also that it doesn't suck the passion and life out of your preaching. Yeah. And I've known some guys that do use a manuscript that do so very effectively. And so for me, it's a matter of how you're wired, what will allow you to be the most effective and faithful teacher of the Bible. And again, I would also say you probably don't need to be able to do a little bit of all. Uh, and certainly yeah. all of us need to be able to just extemporaneously stand up and speak and teach because there are going to be times where that happens. You weren't planning for it. Uh, in fact, I remember several years ago, a friend of mine was being ordained. Uh, I was just going to give the prayer, sitting up on the platform with him at 6 o'clock, sitting there at 6.15, sitting there at 6.20. At 6.25, he says, uh, the, the man that's supposed to preach my ordination isn't going to come. What are we going to do? And I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I stood up and I did a verse-by-verse exposition of First Peter 5, 1 through 4, yeah. without any notes, just my Bible. Yeah. And afterwards, he was so grateful and appreciative and said, well, uh, you ought to preach like that all the time, which may say something about when I've used notes. Yeah. But anyway, there are going to be times where you just have to be ready to go, yeah. and you've got to be able to preach without notes because they're not there. Yeah. Well, that, that speaks to something that I don't think we could put so too much importance on. And that is, you couldn't do that unless the text was worked in you already. Absolutely. And there's this gnawing temptation, I see it in me, to run to the commentaries or to run to the preaching moment. And I'm trying to take dominion over a sermon, but the text hasn't yet dominated me. So could you speak to taking ownership of that text, letting the preaching moment simply being something that's worked out of you, which you God's worked in? Well, Spurgeon used to say that when they cut us, we should bleed Bible. Yeah. And I think carrying that to where I think he would uh, support, that means the text becomes so much a part of you, uh, it is you. You have not just tried to work up or put together a sermon. You've actually gone in there. In fact, Dr. Crystal used to say that his sermon preparation was very much a part of his devotional life. Mm-hmm. So that he was praying through his sermon preparation. He was praying through even when he read the commentaries and the lexicons and the original text. And I think that if you approach it in that kind of, Lord, if nobody else gets anything out of this but me, it will have been worth the energy and the time and the effort. So for me, I'm always saying to the Lord, Lord, teach me. Uh, as I said, I teach on Wednesday nights right now at our church. Hey, I preach usually on Wednesday nights. We have a huge Awanas program. Yeah. I probably preach to 30 to 40 people. Yeah. But I do the same amount of preparation that I do if I were preaching to 300 or 3,000. Because first and foremost, it's for me. Right. And I think if you approach it that way, then you do take ownership of the text, and it really does become a part of you, and you've benefited from it and been blessed by it regardless of what else happens. Hmm. Of course, hopefully something else good happens as right. well. But you know what? I don't think it's likely to be a blessing to others in the same way that it could if it hasn't become a part of you. 
There's no shortcut to that. No, that just takes, again, we talked about this in our forum last night. All of us agreed minimally, David, Alan, yourself, and me, minimally eight to ten hours per message. And I think most of us pushed toward 12. And we all said, you know, if, if I had the time, yeah. I spent 20 hours in preparation for every message. Again, because we want to be true to God's word. And at the same time, we want God's word to do its work in us. Yeah. Yeah, and if, if the Word of God is everything we believe it is, then it's inexhaustible. Absolutely. So a hundred hours, and you're not done with that text. No, you're no. still thinking about it and ruminating. In fact, when I go back to a text I've done before, or maybe I go back to a series I've done before because I'm in a different context, I will always try to find two or three or four new works to read mm. to build on. You know, Jerry Vines used to talk about don't reinvent the wheel, but add something to it. Mm. And because he's shared one time, he'd preached through the New Testament several times, and I said, so you just preach the same message again he said no the next time i went through say galatians i picked up three or four books on galatians that i had not read before added that to that preparation and basically i would even revise my earlier manuscript not that i repeated everything i didn't i mean after all i'd put in 15 to 20 hours earlier for that same text now add another five to seven hours maybe 10 hours to it so now it's a text that has 30 to 35 hours of preparation i think it's a great idea yeah it's very instructive because i find myself going back to sermons instead of going back to text. And mm. I try to recreate a preaching moment that happened a month ago for years ago that was great instead of going back to that text and trying to know That's that a great insight, better. So, um, so golf coaches talk about swing thoughts. You're in the moment. You're about to pre- pre- deliver the sermon. What's going through your mind in that delivery process? I'm asking the Lord to fill me with his spirit. I'm asking the Lord to take me aside and... Uh, to hide me behind the cross and and enable me to exalt Christ. I even pray sometimes, Stephen, it's a hard prayer, but I say, Lord, if, if embarrassing myself today would bring glory to mm-hmm. you and people would hear clearly the gospel, okay, go ahead and embarrass me because what happens in their lives for eternity matters a whole lot more. So I'm just acknowledging to the Lord, I, I realize I may have made the most fantastic preparation possible if his spirit does not take his word and apply it, Mm. then nothing of any real value is going to take place. So I'm really just trying to ask the Lord to take charge and to give me freedom within the preparation that I've done. I do believe God's in the preparation as well. So when some guys goes, well, God just led me to walk completely away from that sermon. I'm not saying he doesn't do that, but I believe God was in the 20 hours or 15 to 20 hours that week that I was preparing to preach that message. Right, right. What are classic mistakes guys make in delivery? They start off with a horrible introduction. More sermons are killed Hmm. in a long, um, non-connected introduction than almost anything else. Hmm. Um, Of course, the other is they end badly. So for Hmm. me... The, the introduction and the conclusion are crucial to an effective message. You, you've got really three to five minutes to get them to buy into why should I listen to what you've got to say or they check out. So I encourage my students to have clear, clean, and concise introductions. In fact, I actually hand write and script out almost word for word how I want to do my introduction. And I do it not for the I. But for the ear, and I'm asking myself, how will my audience hear 
this introduction. And I'm trying to be, uh, my goal is to be to the text within a maximum of five to six minutes because what they're needing is to hear me teach the Word of God, right. not hear me go on for 10, 15, 20 minutes. I, I do demen teaching like you do, and we will evaluate sermons that they actually preach in their context. And nine times out of ten, uh, I will critique them either on their introduction, their mm-hmm. conclusion, or both. And the other end is some of them don't know how to conclude well. And even when they yeah. do conclude well, they go into an invitation in a very haphazard uh, almost uh, no real thought given to it, and I believe the in- invitation is very crucial, and I don't think they think through it very well. And I think that's another place where uh, even good expositors, you know, they they have flown a masterful aircraft yeah. across several continents yeah. only to crash on the landing. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, E.K. Bailey used to talk about coming in for a smooth timely and effective landing, which is what he described as a good conclusion. I think it's a good analogy. We want to have yeah. a good takeoff. Yeah. And we want to have a good... Most plane accidents don't take place while they're in flight. Yeah. They take place on the takeoff and on the landing. Yeah. So I had a former student email me this last week, say, listen to this sermon. I don't know how to get to my invitation. So he's thinking mentally I'm done. I've got to make a transition and invitation. Those few minutes there, and if you talk about a conclusion being five minutes or an intro... That's a few sentences. Yeah. So you've got a few sentences to manage to get them to think about the response they need to make, whether that's a physical response or not, right. some type of response they need to make. Tell us about that. How do you capture that that five minutes in there? Well, this is where I've been helped by those who really emphasize the grand redemptive storyline of the Bible of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, which, of course, you could write over all of that the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so the question for me is, all right, how does the gospel of Jesus then speak to this particular issue that I've addressed uh, in this text-driven sermon? Mm-hmm. If I'm in Ephesians 5, I'm asking the question, how does the gospel address the mm-hmm. issue of marriage uh, in the, the role of a godly husband and a godly wife? If I'm in Ephesians 6, it's going to be children or parenting. If I move later into Ephesians 6 and I get to the armor of God, all right, how am I equipped to withstand the, the fiery darts of the evil one? Well, it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it fleshes out for us what that looks like. So I think the text, because texts are so diverse in terms of subject matter, let them lead you toward how you're going to go into the invitation and then show them how the gospel impacts that. James Merritt preached several years ago. In fact, he sent it to me. So I want you to listen to this sermon. Tell me what you think. He preached through Proverbs, and he did a sermon on uh the ethic of work right. and what it means to be a hard, diligent, honest, faithful worker with right. integrity. So he goes through, uses a number of proverbs and, you know, talks about how they are honest, how they do this and do that and do this. Right. And he gets to the end, he says, but you know what? There's one thing in life you cannot work for no matter how good of a worker you are. And just in the two sentences, yeah. he turned it to the gospel and he said, That's you know great. what, Danny, to my utter amazement, we had... 12 or 15 people that morning respond in repentance and faith to the gospel because they understood, yeah, I've been working hard all my life to please an employer or whatever. I can't work to please my God. Yeah. He did it all. I just have to trust him. Yeah. So I think there's ways to get there without it being rote, routine. Let the text itself determine how you segue into that presentation of the gospel in which you invite people to respond. 
Yeah, excellent. You just have to be creative in the way we do it. So that's not. Yeah, and here's one thing I do yeah. practically. I, when I finish a sermon, I will walk away for at least a couple of hours, if not a whole day. I will then come back fresh and a little bit more uh, energized and then write my conclusion and my invitation. Because mm-hmm. if I've been working for five, six, seven hours, I'm tired. Right. And so what happens is the, the conclusion and invitation gets short uh, treatment because I'm fatigued. So if I get there, I'm like, oh, I'm done for today. Yeah. Walk away, come back. Go through my message again and then say, all right, now, how can I wrap all this up in a way that is true to the text, that shows the people how they respond? And then, and David Allen talks about this a lot, how can I now exhort my audience yeah. uh, to respond in faith and trust to what I've just shared? Excellent. And I think that allows me to do a better job with my conclusion and my invitation. It's very helpful. How do you stay fresh? Uh I keep preaching through new things. Uh, that's one of the reasons I actually volunteered. Kevin Ezell invited me to start preaching on Wednesday nights at Highview my second year at Southern Seminary, right. and I did it for seven years. Hmm. And I preached through new material hmm. the whole time I was there. And I loved it. It was good for me. Came to Southeastern, uh, my pastor there, Bill Boyer at Wake Crossroads. I actually, I went to lunch with him and I said, look, we're seriously thinking about joining Wake Crossroads. In fact, we're going to join Wake Crossroads. I want to make an offer. I shared with him when I did it, um, have you. I said, I'd love to do it here for two reasons. One, frees you up to do more things on Wednesday night, yeah. committee meetings, visitation, going over to Awanas, whatever. Plus, I said, Bill, it's good for me to be working through something new. And so I have preached uh, since I've been there. I spent two years going through the Psalms. Uh, spent now almost uh, two years going through Mark's gospel. I'd never taught through those songs before. Huh. I'd never taught through Mark before. And so it's been good for my heart and soul to do something new. So doing things new, just continuing to be a student of the Bible, even though I happen to be a president of a seminary and I happen to be a professor of theology and preaching and hermeneutics, uh, I need new things continually refreshing my soul as well. And that really helps. So, so you And I listen to a lot of preaching. Yeah. I listen, listen to a lot of preaching. Um, I will listen to, well, like right now, I'm listening to uh, Mark Dever. I'm listening to uh, John MacArthur. Uh, I'm listening to uh, a wonderful expositor uh, who is um, in uh, Dubai uh, named John Fulmer, who is a really fine expositor. I love the preaching of David Platt. I love the preaching of, uh, of Alistair Begg and uh, Matt Chandler and uh, I still listen to Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines. Uh, I listen to Mark Driscoll. I don't commend everything that Mark does, but Mark's very theological in his preaching. He's a good expositor, uh, and he's a great communicator, and, and he's growing. He's, you know, I, I'll be the first to say there's some things he's done that, like his good friend Matt Chandler says, they're 75% of the time I love Mark and 25% of the time I want to kill him. Yeah. Uh, I'm there, yeah. but uh, I can learn from people that I disagree with, yeah. and uh, I like this theological depth of his preaching. So I listen to him. I listen to David Allen. Yeah. I listen to, uh, on our uh, faculty, uh, Alan Mosley is a very fine expositor. Yeah. Tony Morita, yeah. who's just joined us, is a wonderful expositor of yeah. God's Word. So the key is, if the, if someone has preached on the text I'm working on, I try to take advantage of them. So all those guys uh, are out there that I, that I use so at various times. All right, two sentence responses to okay. these four or five things will 
do these as parting shots. I'm encouraged about preaching today because... Because I see a younger generation that loves expository preaching and is firmly committed to it. Excellent. I'm discouraged about preaching today because... Because I thought the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention would have gotten us to the point of exalting expository preaching more quickly than it has. Mm. Uh, I read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, and thought... What a tragedy. He's a great communicator who is a a heretic, Hmm. and that broke my heart. Hmm. He started off well, but I'm afraid he's not going to end well. Hmm. And I agree because he's obviously a very gifted and talented individual, but he's not well grounded uh, to theology, and he's not well anchored to the Bible as God's infallible and inerrant word. Hmm. And unfortunately, it shows in some of his theological trajectories. Hmm. Funniest thing that happened to me in preaching. Oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. You know, by God's grace, I've never done that major, you know, over-the-top faux pas, faux pas yeah. that just, you know, people remember and yeah. take a note of and, and share anywhere and, and everywhere you go. So uh, I just have to say I've been very blessed there. I've had some funny things happen, but nothing that just, you know, to this day causes me to cringe when someone says, you know, I was there when. Yeah. By yeah. God's grace, that, that hasn't happened yet. But unfortunately, I still have a good bit of time to go. All right. Uh, my sermon has been a success when? When I have faithfully communicated the truth of God's word and brought them face to face with the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Aiken, why do you love the Christological passages so much? Because it's all about him. It really is. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And those passages unwrap uh, in an infinite kind of a way. That's why I go back to him again and again and again. Isaiah 53, Revelation 5, uh, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. I know those are all favorite texts of yours. I could preach on those until I die, and I will not even come close to exhausting the beauty and the greatness and the awesomeness of our Savior. And I want people to fall in love with Jesus. If they fall in love with Jesus, they're going to share their faith. Mm. They're going to give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. They're going to pray for the nations. They're not going to cause their pastors any trouble. They're going to memorize Scripture. They're going to pray. It really is. You, you fall in love with Him. It's like in our marriages. We love our wives. We just want to serve them and honor them and enjoy them. Mm. Well, God wants us to enjoy Him too. And lifting up Jesus, I think, leads us to do that better than anything mm. else. Uh, a couple of your Christological sermons have allowed me to think of Jesus differently than I did before and have had a lasting impact. So thank you for that. Well, I'm grateful for the time and investment you've put into that. It's made me think differently about how I want to preach them. And thanks for joining us today. This was fun. Thank you, Stephen. It's been my delight. All right. Thanks, friend.